good soulmate. Look around, Amanda. Know that I'm not lying. You better hurry up. Live or die. Make your choice. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to The Fear of God podcast. Your favorite podcast, my favorite podcast, everyone's favorite podcast. We are so glad you're here for this episode and this installment of our Umbrella Series for the year, that of 2020-2020. To know exactly what that's all about, go back and listen to our precap episode from the end of January for deeper insight. But basically, you guys are voting on your favorite horror films. These are your favorites from the last 20 years, and we're covering one from each year. Uh, We began a few weeks ago with Shadow of the Vampire, then Donnie Darko, then 28 Days Later, then our new favorite, House of a Thousand Corpses. Today, we're discussing a very special film, but I am getting a little bit ahead of myself. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. And typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And and he was here a minute ago. He said he wanted to play a game, though, and, and then kind of you know wandered off. Reed is big on like games and board games, so I'm sure it's I'm sure it's fine. Totally safe. Nothing to Nothing to worry about there, but in the meantime, everyone, while we wait on Reed's return, it's been a year of guests so far, and we've got another one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, you know him as the pod bro scared of open fields. Uh, We know him in our current fog cabinet as head of the Department of Restorative Justice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Blake Collier. Blake, welcome, buddy. Hey, how's it going? Going... (laughs) Going good. You sound like you just sauntered in off the wild plains, you know, and just came through the saloon doors. Yes, that would be correct. (laughs) I feel like we need some tumbleweed going across or the little... Well, I am from Texas, so that makes sense. That's true. That's true. The open fields. I'm getting it now. It's all clicking. It is all clicking. It took a second, but it clicked into place. Blake, I know you know this uh, because you are a very... Um, loyal Fear of God listener, but we want listeners who aren't you, and especially new listeners, we do pick up a few of those every now and then, to know that at the Fear of God, we explore the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, come find us on Twitter, on Instagram, join us in the Facebook group, as Blake has done, for lively discussions around horror and genre-themed media, books, and film. Because here at the Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain, except for right now. 
when I'm going to explain that you can listen to the Fear of God podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, CastBox, and anywhere else podcasts are found. While you're at it, keep your social distance, but subscribe to us on your favorite platform and also and especially on iTunes, where we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and or glowing review. You can also find us on the web. Visit thefearofgodpodcast.com where you will find a blog, an episode archive, and you'll also be able to purchase merchandise from the show. See fellow foggers like yourself and like Mr. Blake Collier, who's here with us today, in their Fear of God merchandise uh, on t-shirts, mugs, cell phone cases, even pillows, even read. Hey, buddy, you're back. What, what, uh, what game you got for us today? I want to play a game. Oh, my goodness. That's a... Uh... That's, that's I don't know what what game are we playing? I want to play Yahtzee. It's been a long time. I can't get anybody to play it with me. Yahtzee! So. That's a that's a really good throwback there. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> I like that. I do like that. Riri, oh. we've got a uh, hi. We do have we do have Blake here. I don't know if you saw him on your way in. I did. Hey, buddy, yes. you were the uh, gentleman I saw sauntering back, uh, maybe yeah. two miles back on my way into <laughs> the old studio. <laughs> yes, um, that'd be yeah. correct. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Riri, you know, uh, uh, Reed. I mean, I'm sorry, Blake, as our. Um, uh, head of the Department of Restorative Justice, Reed, you are <laughs> my running mate yes. in this election year. And I don't know if you heard, Reed, now, in the real world, Ohio's primary was pushed from March 17th due to coronavirus, <laughs> and we take that extremely seriously. But true, in fear of God world, it didn't get pushed at all, and we won! <laughs> we, <laughs> we, awesome. we, we won. We it's taking a lot rules. of verbal gymnastics to get there right now, but I did it. And, you know... <laughs> Who needs who needs super delegates when that's, you've got us, right, Riri? That's right. I I love it. We, you know, we're sweeping right now. I think uh, I, I think the election yeah. is pretty much a lock at this point. I really, uh, yeah. You really would you would think, but I feel like we've we've heard that somewhere before. I'm not going to go there with that language. <laughs> wow. You know, I will I will consider nothing a lock. Nathan wants to play a game. No, no, he really doesn't like the games anymore. His heart cannot handle the games. <laughs> Oh my! Uh, no, it's true. It's true. Um, well, uh, Blake, welcome, uh, and I'm I'm really really glad to know that you are the head of our Department of Restorative Justice. That that delights that delights me uh, tremendously. But you've got uh, some other things going on these days, and it's been a it's been a minute since you've been on the show. Why don't you uh, tell us uh, about your newest venture? I don't want to steal any thunder. Yeah. So recently, uh, I believe it started a couple weeks ago. I started a new short run podcast called 88 names podcast, uh, with, uh, my co-host, uh, author Matt Ruff. Uh, if you don't know his name, uh, you'll know the name of one of his books here shortly, whenever HBO uh, releases their short run or their mini series, I guess, uh, Lovecraft country. He is the author yes. of that book. Very cool. And so he and I, uh, in order to kind of build a campaign around his newest book, 88 names, uh, decided to get together and do a podcast to where we talk to uh, virtual reality uh, developers, thinkers, storytellers, anything, any, any, pretty much any people we can find that have some kind of unique vision for uh, this, the use of this technology. And so, can you 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Blake, I'm but, sorry to cut you off. Can you describe what the premise of 88 Names is, the book? So the 88 Names, the book, is about basically a, uh, a Sherpa or a guide who basically takes people in the future on uh, guided tours of different worlds that you can live in within virtual mm. reality. And so their whole their whole existence is basically around um, this is the future. So like all of life is lived in virtual worlds pretty much. And so this guy wow. is basically trying to build a business around uh, guiding people in these new worlds. And he gets a new client and the new client is, goes by the name of Mr. Jones. And as the book goes on, he, he starts to wonder maybe this isn't, this guy isn't who he says he is. And mm. he might actually be Kim Jong-un. and that's not that's not a surprise that's that's you'll you'll read that on the back of the book when you buy it so interesting it's it's pretty crazy wow it's like this took a turn yeah 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 that was quite a pivot um i kind of wish the title of the book then was mr jones and me which would be a really (laughs) lovely call out to some late 90s wasn't that arrested development the band no no, 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 no. Yeah, that the, was uh, Counting Crows. Oh, yeah, Counting Crows. Counting right. Crows yeah, yeah, you're thinking of Mr. Right. Wendell is, yeah, is what you're right. thinking. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I love this. I love that this moment is happening. We all sudden showed our ages. Mr. Wendell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Well, yes, I'll leave that one there. Um, that's, that's really awesome. That's really awesome. I feel like in the current, uh, we are recording uh, March 24th of 2020, where social distancing, social distance as a concept has entered the lexicon in a profound and immediate way. Yes. And I feel like uh, 88 Names is this really frightening sort of extension of just, you know, what we're learning about right now. About yeah, it's, so. it's pretty crazy. And and it was not like we didn't start COVID-19, but uh, it's, <laughs> okay. we're, we're, we're kind of working off the premise that like we're kind of on the cutting edge of some of some elements of book campaigns because sure sure some of the reach that we're getting is a lot better than most like book tours do Mm, Um, sure just Mm -hmm. because that's i do appreciate i do appreciate that you made that disclaimer we're worried that you actually were (laughs) responsible there's just a lot of thing there's a lot of ideas out there about how where this came from and so (laughs) it's just want to put that out there some of them are bizarre yes they are really bizarre. bizarre Clarify, Blake. So the uh, for our listeners, uh, so the podcast has already begun releasing or yes. is about to release. So there are okay. there are two episodes out. There's a little bonus Easter egg episode zero out as well. Uh, it's just a short little conversation about Lovecraft Country with Matt and I. Uh, and then we have talked to Brandon Oldenburg, who is a Oscar winning uh, animator. Um, his animation won back in 2012. And then uh, nice. We have the release day episode with Matt Ruff himself, where it's just he and I, uh, kind of just talking about the book and sure. various aspects of it. And then we're about to release the Corey Doctor O episode. Um, some people may know that name. He's kind of a well-known YA author, author, and just an activist in a lot of ways, uh, copyright and virtual reality and various things like that. So. Dude, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm, yeah, it's awesome. It's very exciting. Proud, I'm proud of you, and I'm equally parts uh, interested and scared to listen to. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it's podcast. it's surprising. Some of the some of the conversations take a very odd turn sometimes, but it's it's always it's always been very fascinating. So that's cool. Sure. And speaking of speaking of whether it's Mr. Jones, Mr. Wendell, just pseudonyms in general, I want yes. to remind us that present with us right now is. 
lackey the listicle my occasionally <laughs> listless list making lackey that was such a perfect segue and i'm so proud of this moment um hey hey lackey the listicle uh would you enumerate for uh, us yes. uh, or list out just that's <laughs> 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 where you sound like knows more from wreck it ralph too um that's great will you tell listeners about 2020 2020 and how they can participate in this amazing series we're doing right now i certainly will and uh listen ladies and gentlemen uh i we know that most of you are home and have at least some degree of time on your hands so please by all means go to the fear of god podcast dot com visit the banner at the top of the page to take you to the 2020 2020 page where you will have the opportunity to vote on your favorite horror films for every year starting in 2000 all the way up through 2020. Now the surveys that are currently available as of this episode releasing are only 2006, 2007, and 2008. So please, by all means, I want you to go there. We need your votes. We need your participation. Um, we uh, A lot of votes have come in for them, but there's still time. So please, by all means, go there. Cast your vote for 2006, 2000. Seven and 2008. After that, we will be closing down phase one, uh, resuming it again a little bit later in the year, uh, but we'll take a break shortly after that. But you still have time to vote on six, seven, and eight. Uh, we are discussing today your top 10 favorite, as voted on by you, your top 10 favorite horror films of 2004. And uh, and I'm very, very excited and interested to dive into uh, kind of what this list tells us about what was going on then. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, what do you what do you say we we go ahead and uh, just crack open the list and make the listeners wait no more? Sounds good. to me. I'm down. All right. So, uh, Blake, as our guest, I'm going to invite you to start our countdown with number 10. Uh, tell listeners what they voted as their number 10 favorite horror film. And then, uh, Nathan, you can go next. I'll go after that. Beautiful. Well, number 10, you voted in Club Dread by director J. Chandra, Chandra Sakar. <laughs> uh, you know what? Kudos to you. Listen. That sounds like uh, it's like D.D. Mega Doodoo up in here. You know, and, 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 and here's the funny part. Here's the funny part is I've been practicing it in my head for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> And I still didn't get it right. You, you needed to do a little more practice. Yes. <laughs> Jay Shandrasakar, I think. So, uh, yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh, have yes. you ever seen? Have you ever seen Club Dread? I have. Nope. I've seen. I've seen most of their movies. Uh, I've seen Fest and Super Troopers. Yeah, yeah. Club Dread's probably my favorite thing that Broken Lizard did. Like, I really enjoy that movie. Like, I think it's been some degree of time since I've seen it, um, but I remember really liking it. I mean, it's it's this absurd blend of horror and comedy but it doesn't pivot all the way over into direct satire it's more mm -hmm. just like a horror comedy i mean there's some absurdist elements to it but it's not like scary mo the scary movie franchise or anything where it's making fun of horror um it is an actual story um yeah just with some comedic elements and i really enjoy it a lot i like it i i, I have vague memories of it that's yeah. Like I saw, it, <laughs> I saw it with a group of friends back in the day when it first came out, and I don't. I, I remember bits and pieces, but that's about it. I gotcha. I gotcha. Nathan, have you ever seen it? I have not okay. seen Club Dread by Jay. <laughs> JC, we he love JC. Okay, being known as Jay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, um, am all right. I next. Yes, you are next, Nathan. Why don't you okay. go ahead? 
Next on the Fear of God listener voted best of horror 2004 at number nine is directed by Rennie Harlan, Exorcist, The Beginning, a film I have also not seen. I have not seen it either. <laughs> you haven't seen it either? No, I have not. Um, so what's interesting about this, listeners may or may not remember that when they when they announced that they were going to do a prequel to The Exorcist focusing on the younger days of Father Marin, the older priest in the original film, there was a script that was commissioned, um, and Paul Schrader was the director. He went, uh, cast it, he shot it, he completed a film, and then when they show when he released the completed film, uh, there were tremendous concerns at the studio that the film just would not do well. It was very psychological. It was pretty slow paced. It was more uh, thoughtful than they were expecting, and they were expecting sort of a visceral, uh, more thriller type movie. So what they did in a rare, I, I don't know if it's ever happened exactly this way, is they then scrapped everything, fired everybody, they kept the basics of the script with some some deliberate rewrites. They kept the same lead actor, the same sets, um, a lot of the same uh, like extras and everything. But they hired Rennie Harlan to make Exorcist the beginning. So what's really an interesting exercise is to watch the two films uh, sort of in tandem with each other to see the ways in which a different director will interpret uh, the same basic story in completely different ways, uh, which is a really fascinating exercise. I am a much bigger fan of Paul Schrader's film, which uh, was later also released and called Dominion. Um, and um, I'm a bigger fan of that film, but Exorcist the Beginning, I would even have to admit, is faster paced. It's a bit easier to watch. It demands less of the, of the viewer. Um, so I can understand why they were looking for something a bit more accessible, though this film uh, did, was still ultimately uh, a disappointment. So all of you listeners out there who have not uh, seen these films but are interested in that sort of thing, uh, it is an interesting exercise in just film craft to watch the pair of them together. Uh, so number eight is <laughs> a film by Don Mancini, Based on the characters that he created with the original Child's Play, it is Seed of Chucky. Uh, this is an absurd film. This is a really, <laughs> this is a really wacko film. I mean, Bride of Chucky was wacko enough, but then uh, several years later, well, I, actually, Bride of Chucky was '98, I think. So then, like six years later, uh, he releases Seed of Chucky, which is actually like the premise of it is that that like the the spawn of Chucky does not realize that Chucky's his father. And a lot of the plot is driven by him suddenly finding out that Chucky is his uh, father. And uh, it's, it's really it ridiculous. Doll? It's a doll. Oh, yes, it's a doll. Oh, okay. Right, it's, right, right. it's a sentient doll, obviously. but um, Sure. I mean, that would be just I think it, a real I think stream been, of consciousness kind of film if it weren't. I think it would have been funnier <laughs> if it had been a real boy. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, who knows with this series, you know, that's why I asked the question. So what's really funny about this is like Seed of Chucky. It's like a reverse Pinocchio. Exactly, oh, exactly. So Seed of Chucky is just like a really ridiculous, outrageous film. What's interesting is that the very next film in the franchise called Curse of Chucky, they did this bare bones kind of, so Seed of Chucky is just outlandish and ridiculous, but they did a real bare bones kind of return to form approach for Curse of Chucky, and it's actually very, very good. Uh, there's a lot of people who consider, and I think most critics do as well, consider Curse of Chucky, though the like 
sixth in the franchise to be one of the strongest sequels in the entire franchise. Uh, they pivoted hard away from the just outlandish, absurd humor of Seed of Chucky and went sort of back to basics uh, in a pretty effective way. So anyway, I like the Child's Play series. I have a soft spot in my heart for Seed of Chucky, and it's your number eight, listeners. Was Hey, Reed, was the most recent Aubrey Plaza film any good? I liked it. It's not I did as too. good. Yeah, um, it's it's a completely like fresh reboot, so it pretend, sure. it's it's completely out of continuity. But I enjoyed it. it. It they pivoted away from the mechanics of what happens with Chucky in some interesting ways, um, and uh, and ultimately I I thought it was pretty enjoyable. I'm actually surprised that it received as much sort of derision as it did, and I loved. I, I might be in the minority, especially in my household, but I loved the marketing for the new Child's yes, Play. Oh my good. gosh, it was brilliant. Do you remember what that was, Nathan? Yeah, it was like it Toy was... Story murdering Chucky oh, or something like that. S- no, no, no. The Well, yeah, Chucky murdering the Toy Story characters. Like, right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry, great. yes, yes. A um, Toy Story dash murdering Chucky, yes. Uh, Chucky who gosh, murders yes. Toy Story, yes. Oh, Syntax. Man, it was great. It was yes. <laughs> Um, commas are important. <laughs> so. uh, Blake, Blake, next you are. Uh, so number seven, you voted. <laughs> that was meant in. to be a syntax joke, also. <laughs> it, it was. It was good. Good effort there. Good. Good effort. Just in case listeners were wondering. <laughs> sure. <laughs> move along. Move along. So number seven, you voted in the film Secret Window by David Kep. I believe is how you pronounce his name. If I'm not I think mistaken. You're right. I think you're um, right. And this is a film, actually. At, that, at minimum, at minimum, you did a better job than you did with Jay. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have seen this film. Uh, this is actually the the first. Well, I got, so I hadn't seen Seed of Chucky or Exorcist at the beginning, but I uh, I remember seeing this movie and thinking, oh, basically this is a remake of The Dark Half, which had Timothy Hutton, same basic oh, concept, yes. and uh, and I think I liked it better at the time. But it's been a long time since I've seen this one. So yeah, Nathan, have you seen it? I have not seen it. Um, it's it's pretty good, uh, particularly as Stephen King adaptations go. I mean, um, I remember I was uh, kind of meh on it when I first saw it in the theater, but but uh, time has been kind to my memory of it. I'm I'm fond of it in that way that you just kind of uh, uh, an easy to watch thriller uh, endears itself to you over time if it's just reasonably well crafted, not exceptional, but. You know, it it fits the bill. Um, so Secret Window kind of fills that space for me. It wasn't David Kep the guy who directed uh, Stir of Echoes? You know, I think you're right. I would need to look it up to confirm, yeah. but I think you're right. And I I love Stir yeah, of Echoes. Yeah, I do too. I do yeah, too. Stir of Echoes is a great film. Really understated because it came out the same year as Six Sense, and Six Sense, you know, understandably and deservedly stole all the press for it. Yep. But Stir of Echoes is a great film. It's wonderful. Um, Nathan, you are up. All right, number six on this list, directed by Takashi Shimizu, is another film I have not seen called The Grudge. At least I don't think I've seen it. What is this about? I know it's you know. Wait, tell me, tell me the plot because maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll jog my memory. <laughs> this is Sarah Michelle Gellar starring. Um, uh, she comes. To, she comes to. She comes. Uh, Wow, um, I forget if she is. I forget what her role in the film is, but she's she's either like a teacher or a tutor, uh, uh, some somebody fulfilling that capacity, and she comes to a house which is haunted by the spirit of 
um, a, a wicked spirit that has basically a, a, of someone who has died in a tremendous amount of pain. Like when somebody dies hmm. um, yeah. in tremendous pain and agony, uh, it leaves behind like this grudge thing. The the inter- so it's, sure that's not an episode of Buffy you just described. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know what? That's a that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, it's actually so the interesting thing about this. I rem- I have seen this film only once. I saw it when like in proximity to its release. Um, the main thing that I remember about the film, because honestly, I remember precious little except that Sarah Michelle Gellar is the star of it, and I remember that the same that this director who directed the 2004 one um, is also the one who directed the Japanese original. So, the person who um, you know he he got the opportunity to remake it for American audiences, but still pursuing his own vision for what his original was, which I found interesting at the time. But that's that's literally the only thing I remember about it. I also have not seen the recent 2020 uh, remake slash installment, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Blake, what about you? Um, so I've, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen this movie, but I, have, I only have vague recollections of watching it. Um, and so that means that I either didn't like it or... Uh, I didn't ever finish it um, ah, okay. cuz there there was a time cuz that was when I was in grad school when that came out I believe and so um or no it would've been it would've been like midway through college like undergrad so I probably okay. would've been pretty busy and my mind was probably elsewhere so uh it's it was either I do I, I do like or, that the way you just offered that was that basically you may or may not have seen and or started this movie like yes. That was really... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Cool. 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 <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I I have just enough memory to make me think that I saw it, but that's about it. Right. <laughs> sure. Memory's a funny thing that way. It is. It is. It's true. It's true. Um, well, clearly a very memorable film for a number of us. Uh, <laughs> so, um, all right. So I'm going to move on with your list. It was that was your number six. And your number five is directed by Brad Anderson. Those following these lists will uh, note that he is the director of Session 9, which we talked about a couple of lists ago. Um, it's The Machinist, featuring Christian Bale in what I think gets mm-hmm. pointed at as one of his most dramatic transformations, physical transformations. Um, and is also uh, mentioned when people talk about him acquiring the role of Batman in the Christopher Nolan trilogy because he went in Machinist... He is skeletal, literally. He is he is extremely gaunt, very very thin and malnourished, and then had to beef up, uh, unhealthily so, uh, to prepare for the role of uh, well to prepare for the audition. I should be clear uh, to prepare for the audition for his role um, as Batman, and uh, I think might have even been like briefly hospitalized or something. He just did ridiculous things with his body. But um, the Machinist is a film I really highly respect i i think it's fantastic it's been probably too long since i've seen it uh but i remember having such fond memories of it and such great affection for it um have you guys seen it uh and if so do you like it uh yes i have i I have seen it and i adore this film yeah it's it's wonderful it's one of my favorites of of this decade uh easily so yeah yeah it's great nathan i have i have seen it Nice. Uh, back circa Batman Begins, I did go on a bail back catalog, you know, kind of watch through. And of course, this was on the list, um, as is. Empire, so you went, uh, so you Empire would say. Of the Sun. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, there you go. Oh, <laughs> so you would say Batman Begins brought about a bail binge backlog? 
Is that I would say would you, I would say, say, Bat- would you say I, actually the way I would put it is Batman begins began a bail backlog breeze through. Huh? What? <laughs> Uh, what's really funny, Reed, I thought you were going to go here. My understanding of the story you told, which, uh, you know, I'm glad you told it because never let us miss an opportunity to talk about Batman on this show. Um, um, swear to me, um, is not only did Nolan have to pitch hard to get Bale considered, uh, because of his machinist gauntness, uh, but then when he beefed up for the audition you referenced, they were concerned he had gotten too big. Is is how I recall oh, that story. Wow, is that's that, probably like, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is just that's, wild. Um, yeah, that's do, crazy. Do, do love do love some Christian Bale and some Batman. Mm-hmm. Me too. Well, absolutely. Two great taste that tastes great together. Who's next? <laughs> Blake's next. So your number four film is another film I absolutely adore as well, and that's The Village by M Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. Oh man! And listeners, and, and yeah, let, let's give. I, I, if Steve Beckley were here, he would pat me on the back uh, digitally, of course, social distance. Um, is uh, this is uh, Fog six Cannon feet. number thirty four? Yeah, six feet. Uh, episode thirty four in the Fog Cannon read. Yes, absolutely, uh, listeners. We spent an extended amount of time. I got to say that. Uh, the village, our episode about the village, uh, remains for me uh, kind of uh, the heart and soul of the show. Like so many things uh, that came to light in that conversation are still uh, something that I reflect on uh, many, many times. Uh, and I, I loved our conversation about it. And I love, love, love this film. So um, go back and listen to our episode about that. Um, and it's your number four. So that doesn't surprise me that uh, that you love it as well. And that just delights me tremendously. Um, Nathan, why don't you uh, give us the next one? Uh, number three on this list and coming in in uh, fog sequence of episode 172, that of this one, uh, is the film Saw, directed by James Wan, who has shown up elsewhere in the canon as well. So Saw, we will be discussing that very momentarily. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, next is another film that we that is in the Fog canon. I do not have the number in front of me. Maybe 105, Nathan. 105. Oh, beautiful. Um, <laughs> what I meant to say was number 105 in uh, the, the Fog <laughs> canon is uh, the Zack Snyder-directed remake of Dawn of the Dead, which we had a whole episode about, and uh, you can go back and hear our thoughts on that. The only one we're missing contributing to that conversation is Blake. Blake, do you like Dawn of the Dead? Have you seen it? Do you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I went to see it in theaters when it first came out and loved it at the time. And I think I maybe watched it a few years later and loved it then. And I would imagine that if I watched it now, I would still get a lot of enjoyment out of it, if not loved it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think this is a good, a good pick. Awesome. Keeping awesome. keeping my uh, Beckley hat on momentarily, The Village was part of the series Springtime for Shyamalan. Dawn of the Dead was part of the series number two, if you'll recall. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, mm-hmm. who's uh, who's last year? Is it Blake? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Blake will give us our number one. Your favorite. So, so I'm I'm a little surprised that this one hit number one. It's it's a small little indie film that really I'm <laughs> I'm surprised that anyone has ever really heard of. Uh, it's it's directed by some unknown by the name of Edgar Wright. Uh, it's a uh, Sean of the dead dead. De- de- <laughs> oh man don't i don't know about y'all but i haven't seen this so <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh yeah listeners we did well blake once you do watch it you can go back to fog canon episode 139 as part of our funnier die series and watch and listen to our conversation about it 
<laughs> these these lists are turning into like commercials for our show. Why so, not? <laughs> Why not, Reed? <laughs> so commercial. Uh, so we're all uh, just sitting at home. May as well watch some movies and listen to some podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, right, right. Um, so we're going to uh, before long, momentarily, we're going to have a conversation, uh, an extended conversation about James Wan's Saw, which was your number three on the list. But while we do that, uh, before we do that, Nathan, will you pull up 2004's Global Box Office on Box Office Mojo? And then uh, let's make some observations about uh, this list. It does feel a bit more of a, um, a hodgepodge, more so than some of the other lists have felt. But I do I do find it interesting that the top two films, top two favorite films, were both uh, zombie films um, and films of, uh, of a nature of like, have a sort of a, an apocalyptic air to them. Um, but the rest of the list feels a bit uh, piecemeal. It, uh, it's, it's difficult to discern anything directly uh, connected that's interesting about these lists. Blake, do you see anything? Uh, not off the top. I, I do find it humorous that the first and 10th or it's kind of bookending with a uh, kind of the comedy, uh, horror. Oh um, yeah, that's right. That. But, that's right. but really, yeah, I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty slapdash, uh, every, with everything in between. Uh, I mean, I can make some connections between two or three of them, uh, here and there, but yeah, as a whole, I'm not sure I could thread the needle. So. Yeah, nothing nothing really uh, standing out. I do think that uh, this is sort of the beginning of a wave, and, and zombie films kind of uh, ease into that. Uh, we are going to see films in the coming years that get a bit more edgy and graphic. Uh, Dawn of the Dead and Shaun of the Dead are, are not that. I wouldn't describe them as such. Um, but we're going to start seeing films with a more intense sort of uh, gore and... and uh, a little bit more extreme in their violence or their uh, sort of visceral presentation. Uh, we're going to see more of that as time goes on. But um, but other than that, yeah, I, th- I think this is a pretty eclectic list, if you will. Uh, Nathan, have you got the box office up for us? Yes, and as a mild observation to the top ten here, this is maybe just me, like, wish wishful thinking here. But I feel like in general, I could be totally off base here, but I know... Uh, the village and or thereabouts is when the big pivot started to happen on Shyamalan's early phase of his career. And mm. so I kind of like the idea and I'm just going to pretend in my spirit because we all need a good, you know, kind of balm for our, our innards right now that uh, the reason the village is so high on this list is because of our listeners fondness for our episode read. Oh, I, like I, um, I, I would like that. I would like to believe that as well. Yeah, so we'll just choose that. We'll we'll claim it after we've named it. <laughs> um, yes, looking at the 2004 worldwide box office. You know, it's wild. Is the 2020 worldwide box office is is going to be pretty uh, dismal? It's uh, going to be so strange. Yeah, when we when we do 40, 40, 40, 40, it's going to be rough goings. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Would that be 2020? 2040? I don't know. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Maybe. Who can who can say? Math, uh, math. So top five. This is a really fascinating list. I think I just said that. Number five for all the good Christians and Mel Gibson fans out there is indeed the Passion of the Christ. Wow. Which is wow. Pretty wild. Talking about some extreme I'm violence. They didn't make our top ten. It's pretty horrifying. <laughs> wow. It is pretty horrifying in places. That's true. Is that is true. Visceral, visceral for sure. It is torture um, porn. Truly. Uh, but yes. <laughs> it is uh, came in with 611 million dollars uh that mm. year. 
Um, next up the list is the first installment Pixar showing here again of The Incredibles with six hundred thirty-one ah, million. Very nice. Very nice. Um, Third on the list is the second installment and what a lot of folks consider one of the finest in the Spider-Man franchise, that of the Alfred Molina co-starring Spider-Man 2 by yes. Sam Raimi uh, at almost $789 million. Uh, really wild film. sort of turn of events here at numbers two and one, and that is number two on the list at just under $800 million, is the third installment in the Harry Potter series, Prisoner of Azkaban? Is that third read? Oh third, yes, right? that is the third yeah. one. Yes, Alfonso so Cuarón isn't directed. Mm-hmm. Yes, it isn't strange that that's that high on the list. What's strange is what came in above it, to me at least, and a good bit above it. So uh, Azkaban came in at seven hundred ninety-five million at number two. Number one on the list with nine hundred twenty-eight million and change is Shrek 2. Oh, wow. Shrek 2. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? That is that crazy. Is, that is pretty wild. I would have, yeah, I would not have suspected Shrek 2 to win the global. I know I know, Shrek was popular. It was incredibly popular. But, and as we reflected on, uh, I believe, last week with uh, in, in our countdown with House of a Thousand Corpses, sequels particularly are directly reflective of the success of their previous installment. Um, yeah, so the first so, one's huge, and yeah, the first one was gigantic. The first one, I don't know if you remember this, and I don't think we we mentioned it in the episode, but Shrek is the first is kind of the reason we have an animated picture Oscar. Uh, Shrek huh. was the Shrek was the year that they created it, and Shrek was the first film to receive it. Um, so Interesting. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, I guess the only way this makes sense is in the context of just how big culturally Shrek was. Um, but I also like, I feel like Chris Columbus had directed the Harry Potter movies to, you know, they were very good, but they were, uh, you know, growing long and they were just trying to squeeze every bit of the books into those first two installments. And I read somewhere, I, I can't remember the article, but it said that basically Alfonso Cuaron's creative vision and what he brought to uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban cannot be understated because had that film failed, it is highly possible we would not have completed the franchise. Like if Alfonso Cuaron had not done well with, uh, had not done as well as he did with Prisoner of Azkaban, then uh, it, it likely would not have continued the franchise because they were beginning to to worry about diminishing returns and uh, oh it's this is not going to be as popular for people who haven't read the book um, and so uh, so that isn't that is interesting it'll be curious to see mm. where the hottie, Harry Potter uh, movie the hottie Potter <laughs> the hottie, hottie Potter hot, hottie Potter uh, the uh, hottie Perry <laughs> the, um, where wow. those uh, where those films wind up in uh, future installments but uh, yeah that's that's yeah really, I love that our look back. At the box office, global box office is really just tracking the Harry Potter box office. <laughs> Where's it going to be this week? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> right. Where did it fall on the list? Oh, my gosh. Um, mm. All right. Well, that was uh, that puts in the books uh, your top 10 favorite horror films of 2004 uh, with an eye towards global box office. But now the time has come to talk about the seminal entry in one of the most uh, known, if not most viewed, franchises in horror history and that is saw directed by james wan written 
and starring, written by and starring Lee Whannell. Um, okay, so a couple of things up top. Nathan, this was your first viewing, yes or no? In, uh, indeed, yes. Okay, and Blake, how many times have you seen this? This was actually, I think, my second time. Oh, only your second time. Okay, yeah. I've, I've seen the film, by my count, five times now. Okay. Goodness I gracious. Yeah, I, I've, se- I've seen the film a lot, and I'm still uh, very, very fond of it, as we'll, as we'll get into. Um, but what's interesting to me about this film, sort of right out the gate to, as a, a discussion point, the f- this film, along with a later film, uh, Eli Roth's Hostel, um, are largely cons- they're largely credited with helping to launch the subgenre of horror that we've referred to a couple of times known as torture porn. Or I've also heard uh, gornography, which is a term I prefer. But um, they're credited as helping to launch that, which is characterized by extreme extended sequences of victims being tormented in physical and psychological ways, um, frequently very graphic and very violent. Um, and, and hence that's the, how they get that name is, is just like almost exploitative in their violence. But what I find interesting about that is that I don't consider this film to be that much of that. Like, I don't consider it to have that many qualities. There's definitely some, some elements of that in its plot, but you don't see a lot of that in this, uh, film. A lot of that violence happens off screen. Um, or is implied yeah. rather than actually put in your face, which is something I've, I've consistently found interesting about this installing uh, franchise. Um, but before we go too much further into like trivial bits and stuff like that, uh, I want to get some general reactions from you. So, Blake, you've seen it twice. You're our guest. What, how do you feel about this film? So I, I remember really loving it when I first saw it, and it was probably on you know video whenever it came out. I didn't see it in theater at the time, and so... Ah. Um, I, I remember watching it like late at night and, uh, really loving it when I, when I finished it and it's had a really good, uh, memory for me, uh, this whole time. And this, this time around, I, I lost a little bit of the loving feeling for it. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and is, and it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, really, exactly. I'm, ta- I'm the, resisting. It's the, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, Cause yeah. Baby, <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Who are we putting on the corner? No, sorry. Um, <laughs> what? So, wasn't you that never, from, you uh, never, yeah, you never put baby in the corner. Oh, yeah, exactly. The corner. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm tracking with you, Blake. I'm with you. I'm with <laughs> okay, you. I was like, maybe I got the wrong song. <laughs> <laughs> Although um, you do have the wrong song. I think that song, oh, I think okay. the Dirty Dancing song is, uh, I've had the time of my life. But, uh, yeah. There you go. There but you go. this so, conversation is delightful to me. I think Beautiful. that's a Top Gun reference. I think, <laughs> okay. isn't you lost that love and feeling from Top Gun. Uh, yes, maybe I believe so because they sing it. Uh, they they sing it karaoke, right? I think. Maybe oh, man. Yeah. It's been so long man. since I've seen them all. <laughs> you know, for a uh, bunch of like you know late thirties, early forties dudes, we are struggling. No, right Top now. Gun is take my breath away. Top Gun well, is take my breath away. I know that. But they, I know. But they it, trust they me, it. I know that song. <laughs> but <laughs> listeners I mean, know a little listen, too well. Every time I listen to an episode of Fear of God, it takes my breath away. So. <laughs> Take my breath away. This is this is great. This is the musical episode right here, Blake. We no, that was supposed inter- to be last week with Land of a Thousand Dances. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. That's true. Blake, we rudely interrupted. Top your, Gun, your, Top your, Gun, your album, <laughs> Top Gun. It's everybody, it's becoming a land of confusion. I just guys. looked. At, wow, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, you're like. 
And I'm taking it back to the Genesis. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, uh, so yeah, I uh, I remember like for the longest time because because like you oh, said, Reed. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay, Nathan. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on! You know you thought that one. I resisted on Top Gun. I couldn't uh, then. <laughs> um. So to to tag on to uh, what Reed was saying <laughs> is that. <laughs> um. Oh crap! I don't even know if I can remember what I was going to say. But... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is my fault. Oh no, you're good. No, it's you were talking about your second viewing and how it didn't hold up quite. Oh well. yeah, yeah. So, so like like Reed was saying about it, kind of you know this and hostile kind of creating a uh, gornography. I think you called it. I'd never yes. heard that term before. Yeah. So I prefer um, that term too. Though. Okay. Yeah. That fair enough. Yeah. That's that, that's a fair uh, term. So, um, I I used to really buckle at people putting this movie in that that framework because i always felt like it had a moral center whereas uh, yeah, hostile yeah. and and other saw entries uh did not have it uh, yes. as much and, and so um but i this time i watched it and i felt it was a lot more muddled than i remembered it being as mm, far as it's mm. uh it's moral center and so i was i was a little thrown off by that and i didn't know what to do with it so um hopefully my thoughts will be clear on it that that may be my uh my addition to this uh, talk is just trying to figure out what it, what exactly was muddling it for me. So uh, yeah, gotcha. I, I, I used to love this film, like the memory of it at least. And, and I liked it at the time and this time I'm not so sure. Uh, hmm. I, I had some issues with it. So understood. Understood. Uh, Nathan, uh, why don't you summarize your general feelings about it being the first time viewer of it in song or <laughs> you know what in song word. if you can. I, can, I i can't fight this feeling anymore so <laughs> <laughs> goodness gracious y'all are there's some good ones oh, there's some good ones um so yeah i had never seen the film before and uh had honestly held off uh years ago reed and i have a mutual college buddy who um tried to sell me on watching it and so i texted reed about three fourths of the way through this viewing because the big twist of the film, I recalled that, that it was there mm, and coming, yeah. um, which is a little unfortunate. I do kind of wish I hadn't known that, but it was because years ago a, a college buddy was trying to say, Hey, you, this is actually pretty good. It's kind of storytelling kind of thing. And um, so I did know that. And that was kind of a little bit of a letdown. Uh, generally speaking, I I found it pretty positive. I will say this. In the moment uh, in time in which we find ourselves, um, I got a little worried, uh, if I'm being perfectly frank, about, mm. I don't know, 20 minutes in. I, For one of the first times ever, I was like, I don't know if I kind of want to put myself through this because uh, the real, yeah. the real yeah. world is pretty hard right now. And, uh, you know, I didn't have some magical turnaround, but... Um, I will say one of the few kind of bright spots in light of that rather real feeling was, uh, man, this shows you that uh, three years of horror movies can, can normalize you to a lot. I actually thought for what I was worried I was going to get, it was pretty restrained kind of to your yeah. point, Reed. Oh yeah. Um, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, knowing the nature of the content and knowing the imagery of the box art and, and I knew the story, uh, loosely, um, I was like, "Huh, this this uh, old old um, Dread Pirate Roberts is 
chopping his foot <laughs> off, but I'm not even seeing it. How do I know he did it? You know? Um, so, so yeah, I actually was a little impressed with the restraint there though. Who knows? There's a good chance that got filmed and just got cut for, for ratings purposes. Yeah. But, um, but nonetheless, yeah, I, by the end of it, I liked it. I think it's, it's pretty smart, you know, for, for being this kind of lo-fi, uh, type of production, it's, it's got a pretty inventive plot to it and just kind yeah. of, yeah. um, not in the way, not in the exact same way, but reminds me of like Blumhouse type entries. Like when you, mm-hmm. what, when sure. horror can really, when, when horror can really just stick the landing is, and I mean, artistry in general kind of benefits from this type of modality, but that of shoestring budget, meaning you've got to get inventive, you know, you got to get, yes. Yeah. Uh, or rather inventiveness is what succeeds, right? Like shoestring budget doesn't, um, guarantee success. It just means to, to, to earn success, what you also have to have in the mix is innovation and inventiveness. And I do think this film has a lot of that personally, uh, a lot of the, the backstory stuff though, interesting as kind of filler. Uh, I didn't love from a just kind of production standpoint. I found, I found the bathroom stuff a lot more interesting, that single set setup. but I know sure, that's, sure. you know, that's going to be hard to wring out a, a features worth of material from anyway. So yeah, I, I, I thought it was interesting. I'm not, um, you know, disappointed. I watched it by any means. I, I, I am, if I have any disappointment, it's just that I knew the big twist, uh, yeah. That, yeah. that is the pun- the punchline of the film. But other than that, no, I found it uh, enjoyable, entertaining. Re- Which, oh, go ahead, Blake. Oh, no, I was just I was just gonna say that, that I kind of put this film in the category of of a few films uh, that kind of run into the problem of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre syndrome. Uh, you you think it's a lot more violent and bloody than it is? Um, yes. Because I was yes. even surprised at how restrained it was this time around. Because I remember it being a lot more bloody, but I've also seen maybe two or three of the other saw movies and so it's pretty easy for them to blur together uh, in some spaces so um yeah i think it, i think it the restraint actually is quite appealing uh compared to the rest of the films no absolutely and and that's the thing that uh by james wan's uh description he said that starting with the sequel and i mean starting with saw 2 like it's mm-hmm. not that they just get like progressive like the difference in exploitative violence between this initial entry and Saw Two is stunning. Um, yeah. And and James Wan even said like the sequels get uh, extremely nasty. And yeah. the first time that I tried to make my way through, because I really responded to this film very positively the first time I saw it, it saddens me so much, Nathan, that you knew that twist because my experience. When uh, and listeners, I'm about you know we spoil everything. I'm about to spoil like the final moments of Saw for you. So if you're at all interested in watching the film, then now's your chance before having something spoiled. Um, but when he rises up, when the body rises up, and you realize that that person has been laying there and has not been dead the whole time, um, I remember just being electrified yeah. when I was watching the movie. I was like, this. I never saw a twist like that coming. I suspected that there would be some sort of last minute reveal of who was really behind everything, but never suspected that the dead body in the room was not going to be dead. And that was well, really galvanizing. What's, what's so funny about that. And, and, you know, kind of the, the real time processing that was happening for me during this viewing was 
I knew only because I'm lightly familiar with the franchise on the whole that the actor Tobin Bell is Jigsaw. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of antagonist of, of the series or, or maybe a part of the series, at least. I don't know. But so I knew that. Well, you know, one, I'm just like, oh, wow, there's there's Miles Strom from Lost. Oh, my God. Exactly. There's <laughs> Benjamin Linus from Lost. Oh, my God. You know, I just didn't know these folks were in the film. And and I so I knew I was like, OK, Michael Emerson is a, a patsy somehow. I know Tobin Bell. And so I, I it didn't click with me that the actor Tobin Bell is who is in the hospital bed um, mm, mm. Uh, in that scene. So I, I kept anticipating, OK, he's going to reveal himself visually at some point. And so as the movie enters kind of that midpoint to third act, I was like, OK, uh, he hadn't shown up yet. He's masterminding this somehow. I can't. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's the body. You know, it, it all kind of clicked <laughs> into place. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy 15 years ago told me the twist of this story. And it's the dead body, which isn't dead. That's OK. Now I know how yes. this is. Uh, so, yeah, it was right. it was kind of fun, but kind of disappointing because I'm with you. Like if I um, had not known that, I, I, I can truly see how that is a uh, monumentally significant uh, twist to the end of this film. Yeah, yeah, very clever. And what you mentioned, the backstory earlier. So so I had this experience because of my affection for the first one. I watched the second one, and I remember thinking with the second one, like, wow, that was way more violent. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. The third one is as much or more so violent than the second one. And I was like, man, this is just getting too oppressive. I don't know that I can keep up with this series and sure enough after seeing the third one I was like I, I, I can't do this anymore so I so I bowed out on the third one it was only like a year or two ago that I uh, rather impulsively decided you know what uh, I'm more acclimated to things I kind of know what I'm in for so I can brace myself a little bit there have been you know a dozen of these movies I don't, actually I think there's only like nine of the films but um, but I was like let me let me just go ahead and see what they have to offer and so I watched them through again, and what stunned me about this whole franchise is you mentioned, Nathan, the um, uh, like backstory element of it. Dude, as the sequels progress, you got no idea. Like th- They continue in, in ways that I find legitimately noteworthy and, uh, and impressive. Sequel after sequel continues to layer back things that happened before the events of this film, things that happened immediately after the events of these films, uh, characters interweave. Like, it will sometimes show you, I believe it is, like, sequel five or six that goes back to a moment in part three and shows you what was happening, like, on the other side of one of the walls from the scenes. Like, they, they interlace with each other in some remarkably impressive ways. And in most of the cases they get the same actors to come back and refilm the scenes from a different perspective or show you new pieces of information. So what's remarkable about the franchise is that if you consume it as a whole, it does begin to elevate itself as a complete piece. That, cool. ha- that having been said, the, the violence is hard to stomach. You get a bit numb to it after a while, but it is, it is difficult as it gets in, because it does become, by by my choice of words, it does become exploitative. It becomes like uh, the it becomes less about what the point of this film seems to be, which is you're in a situation where you have to make a life or death choice, and becomes more about how elaborate can these traps get, and how you know gruesome can their 
pain level B to their victims, and and that becomes a bit less interesting. But again, the the franchise as a whole begins to kind of elevate itself under its pure plotting labyrinth because they all of these different things weave back uh, into each other. I'll make one more note about that, and then uh, we can get, stay with some you know uh, specifics. Uh, so Carrie always is is one of the leads of this film, plays Dr. Gordon. Um, so he actually wound up suing the film because Whoa. he he was not paid his back end revenues in his contract. He claimed revenues uh, percentage of one percent, which, given Saw's success, would have been a pretty hefty payday. I mean, it profited more than a hundred million dollars, um, and so he would have seen a substantive amount of well, one percent of that. Um, the case was settled out of court. Uh, but there was a lot of bad blood about it between him and uh, the franchise. So all of these sequels continued to come out and would reuse actors and actors from, you know, sequel two would show up again randomly in part six and all, all of these kind of machinations. Um, finally, I don't know what was happening behind the scenes, but they did finally make a, a version of reconciliation and Carrie always character comes back again for uh, saw the final chapter in a pretty inventive way that I that I like quite a lot. Um, but again, this just speaks to the way in the ways in which the franchise, more so than I think any other franchise I can think of, they tie together so directly that they do kind of justify themselves in that way. <laughs> like <laughs> it is, re- it is really weird because. Like the Friday the Thirteenth franchise and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and the Halloween franchise, it's like these sequels are are sometimes so disconnected from each other that you can tell it's kind of a relay race. Somebody just picked up the baton and ran with it from here. It's Whereas, more like a spiritual sequel instead of an <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whereas the Saw franchise really feels uniquely visionary in that you know, that they all kind of tie together in a pretty inventive way that I find impressive. Um, Do you so anyway, know, um, you might not know the answer to this, but is Juan involved throughout? He does not direct any more of them, and I don't even know. Oh. He may be in a producer capacity. I know that uh, Lee Whannell is. So so Lee Whannell wrote this film with James Wan, um, right. co-wrote installment two and three and then was a producer on the entire rest of the franchise so so lee Wanell kind of unifies the vision of where the series goes which may be a large part of why they tie together so effectively um sure. but uh but yeah it is it is him who kind of uh takes on the the bigger mantle of the franchise as a whole well, but they when he's a, he's like a huge horror fan too he's like he i, I could see him being really um kind of anal retentive about making sure that these all tie together mm. in a producer role. Um, sure. I mean, sure. just, just, a, he strikes me as that kind of guy in that way. Yeah. So. Yeah. I understand. Well, what's cool. And I don't know if you guys knew this or if you just stumbled upon it in your trivial bits, but um, Lee one and James Wan, who I think went to film school together um, and they wanted to make a film like right out of film school, but they could only afford to get like a single room. And so Nathan, you mentioned earlier about how restrictions can sometimes produce creativity and they, they can kind of just launch inventiveness. Well, the entire story was born out of these, these pair of friends just saying, well, what kind of story could we make about one room? 
Like, how do we right. make that as interesting right. as possible? And uh, and so thus they they wrote the script and they they took it. They specifically like were trying to break into Hollywood, as it were. And then uh, they got some good response to their script. Um, I don't know who or where, but there was like an executive at a studio that encouraged them to make a short film as like a proof of concept for it. And so mm-hmm. then they began to shop the full script with the short film as kind of uh, like proof of concept again. Um, and then were eventually uh, given a modest budget to go and try to, uh, you know, make this full film. And it turned off. Uh, incredibly successful for them. It's still one of the most profitable horror films of all time. Um, so yeah, good I will idea. Throw, I will throw as a nominal trivial bit here, uh, similar to House of a Thousand Corpses, for the families in our listener population who share digital platforms for viewing things i would recommend this as another amazon rental okay yes, <laughs> yes. i don't yes. want the dismembered body parts popping up next to olaf and the gang indeed um, indeed yeah. so an amazon rental um do we want to just jump into likes dislikes uh let's do it yeah 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 i'm i'm good if you are like yep i'm good my my starting point here was again not knowing what on-screen content I was going to get. I just said, as nasty as I suspect this movie is going to get, being barefoot on that grimy-ass floor is a rough go. Like, that (laughs) is not cool. That is not cool. There's nothing sanitary happening in this bathroom. Well, and then poor Adam has to, like... Oh, sure. Yeah. That was before that. That's disgusting. Unfortunately, I've actually had to do that in real life. Which part? Yeah, yeah. Which one? (laughs) <laughs> like the toilet to, yeah the toilet yeah oh my god because i used to clean rental properties so you got stuck in a bathroom with another guy no 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 you no, had to no. puzzle out just, just a simple reaching in of a toilet oh. bowl that had oh. undesirable oh. stuff <laughs> i'm gonna need a minute <laughs> it's gonna take, take more my than a minute to get out of that. Don't, don't worry don't worry I take have my lunch so. away <laughs> Oh boy! It's, every, um, it's, it's as nasty. So where do you as go? Where do you go from that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say, I will say, I, it's it's weird. I can't remember a film that did this, but there was a slight thrill of just nostalgic kind of, I don't know, I don't know what you know, like the the endorphins or something. Uh, when Adam is looking for the means to retrieve the cassette player, like all I could think of was like playing the 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 computer game mist from 30 years ago <laughs> or like a resident evil type of i was like yeah somewhere in this room is a thing you need to get the thing and then you're going to find the thing to get the thing that's going to provide you with the information to get the other thing oh, and then other man. things are going to reveal themselves so i don't know it just had this real it's awesome teenage well, you can... nathan playing video games kind of mentality to it i would i would venture to say that that Juan and Wanell probably played those games, and that largely like was the echoes of them trying to <laughs> like, what can we do in a room? Well, you know, I loved Mist. Let's uh, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's let's speaking do of that. Echo, Echo was a dolphin on a Sega Genesis game from you know the early nineties. <laughs> and and good, James good Wan is you. like, you really like the Mist, huh? Well, that doesn't come <laughs> out for three years. <laughs> right. Wow. Wow. Uh, Wow. This is all getting wow. so weird. It is. It is. So somebody stuck their hand in a toilet. Name Blake. Um, 
So I I do love uh, like I I find the practical logic behind this to be really unbelievable. Like that that an individual could pull <laughs> yeah. off yeah. the things Come that, that get Come pulled on. off in this movie. But um, there is something I, I think Nathan, either you or Blake said uh, earlier that's just like. It's really kind of inventive and, dare I say, despite the grim nature of its premise, kind of fun to try to piece out like, well, what's this next thing mean? And what's this What's this part connect to? And, and there are some really nice little surprise pivots in the way everything kind of ties together. I'm thinking specifically about like reveals that Detective Tapp was the one who actually hired Adam to come in and uh, just the ways in which these characters' lives are overlapping and intersecting. And I find that while uh, logically implausible, uh, I do think that that increases the film's fun. Um, And as many times as I've seen it, I still did not remember all of the connections. And so it's kind of nice to rediscover them as the film's making its way through its narrative. Well, it's funny you say that because, again, loosely knowing, you know, two people in a single room having to quote unquote kill each other by means of this puppeteer character off screen, I was starting to get really confused by the backstory and it, yeah. not in a bad way, but just yeah. in a like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea this was this labyrinthine. <laughs> right. Um, oh, just, yeah, wait. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. There's like, there's one thing. I, I mean, I'll say this uh, like listeners who have uh, seen the whole franchise, the throwaway moment when, the, the Tobin Bell's character stands up, points to the bathtub, and says, "The key to your ankle is in that bathtub." Um, and then it reveals that, like, the key fell down the drain; that it went all the way down the drain. Like that little throwaway moment becomes like a major thing in. Uh, well, not a major thing, but it becomes like a reveal, s- substantiating a plot point of of part three. <laughs> <laughs> that it's like, oh, and it's like nice. this is the way these things kind of like tie in together is a little throwaway moment like that, which in part two is just like not even considered, but then in part three it comes up uh, as as part of why one character is brought in to play another game is all tied back to the fact that this key fell down this bathtub drain. It's just it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, that's, well, that's I mean, do you toilet. find out? Yeah. Do you find out who didn't flush the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> no, that remains no. a mystery. Oh, that'll be for the next. That'll be for the next, the next film. That'll be spiral. <laughs> yes. Hey, yeah. Blake. Did you, Blake? You may have said this. Have you seen beyond this first one? Uh, so I've seen. I so I know I've seen two, and I and I feel like I've probably seen three. But after that, uh, yeah, I, I stopped watching them. Gotcha. Uh, and and I think it became less about the violence because I'm I'm weirdly sedate when it comes to watching violence for for good or mm. ill. Um, mm-hmm. Probably but, real. Yeah, probably for real. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think I just got bored with the with basically the, the, the formula of it. And so Ah gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. So yeah. which I could see. I could see yeah. that happening. Because I will say but, that like go ahead. But hearing no, you, you talk about it, but hearing you talk about it makes me kinda want to go back and, and watch them uh before the, the new one comes out. So You know, I it's it's it wasn't a it wasn't a terrible experience. Like yeah. I'm I'm gonna be honest. Like I, I I have a fondness for like, yeah, I did that whole big run in like a week. I think I watched like one new installment per day and I was like, that was a little fun. I remember by the time I <laughs> raked up to like number five and six, I was like, Oh yeah, Man. what's what's the next installment got thank, for me? Th- and thank thank goodness it wasn't a big fun. I was gonna say I like that you qualified it as it was a little fun. It was like, a little fun. A little if fun. you're if you're pondering this, fun happens. <laughs> just be you know, 
be measured just in be how aware. much fun you expect. <laughs> well, because um, it feels like I, I will. I'll just make this comment to what it. Blake was saying that like you get bored with the the uh, sort of gimmicky nature of it. What's interesting is that they seem to go more and more elaborate with like the the mechanics of the traps and yeah. the people in the traps, and that does get numbing. That's where all of the violence is, and that's where that's like the least interesting thing to me about the subsequent sequels. What's most interesting to me about it are the ways that the characters, like the why they're there becomes significantly more interesting than what they're going through in yeah. the uh, machinations that they endure. Um, and I do find that remarkably compelling and like there's one point there's one sequel i won't say which one there's one sequel in which the tobin bell character um dies and he dies on screen in a way that is like impossible to deny like this character is now taken out of the franchise but as the franchise continues they actually do a pretty good job of substantiating how and why these things keep happening in ways that I found impressive. And I'm like, wow, this is like other characters come in, but then those other characters are rooted in things you already know in the mythology. So I think that's another thing that impresses me about it is that it's a an elaborate mythology, but that's based purely in... Uh, I'm in air quotes. The listeners can't see real world scenarios. Like it's not some weird curse. It's not some supernatural gimmick. They're all tied together in ways that, while implausible, um, are actually possible in the real world in terms of the character connections. So anyway, I would like to so I would like to plug right now the B side Fear of God episode that launches three days from now on Friday of Reed just by himself talking through all the sequels and spoiling them. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know what? I really don't want to watch eight more films. Reed, will you just talk for two hours and maybe I'll (laughs) listen to it? So so do y'all mind if I sum up what Reed just said? It's a a big story. With a little fun. fun. (laughs) It's a little fun. Exactly. I will say this. I'm glad. So I did see Invisible Man and... Did Wanell direct Insidious, or was that Juan also? Juan, um, he that, no, James he, Wan he directed, directed Insidious. Insidious three, three, three. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, but he I'm wrote just trying Insidious. to think. Did I did I know Wanell's name as director pre Invisible Man? And I don't know if I know that or not. Um, Do you but saw Upgrade? I will. S- yeah, Upgrade. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah he directed right. Upgrade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I that he had a bit role in Insidious that we saw and covered. Um, I don't have that fear of God canon number. Sorry, Steve. Um, and I'm glad that I knew him as director before seeing Saw because he is one whiny little bee in this movie. Yes. I was yeah, not I ready that. for that. I was like, dang, dude, calm down, <laughs> calm, calm yourself. <laughs> it's oh. a little fun, man. It's a little fun. Just lean <laughs> in. It's a little fun. A little lean fun. in on the little fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. My last note in my likes dislikes is I just made a silly joke where I'm like, why is Michael Emerson's character always got to be stealing somebody's kid? Like, why? Why is that? Why is that? Spoiler alert! That Spoiler alert! Uh, Spoiler yeah, alert. exactly, exactly. But still, wow, so um, much for lost. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! How about scares? How about scares? There's definitely some in this film. Uh, I will lead the way by just the contraption on Amanda's head was oh, the reverse bear trap whoa, whoa. <laughs> terrible that's a gruesome scene i mean that ho- yeah i was gonna say that whole like sub episode you know like that music video style sequence with her yeah the friggin the friggin dude is still alive I was like oh my god that ain't right that ain't right <laughs> that ain't and right. then the, the right. jigsaw doll on the tricycle 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's that whole sequence uh I I think was what they used in the proof of concept thing, huh. I think was that sub sequence, but it was a, a a a male character in the trap. Um I believe in my uncovering that that was what the that that was the case, but um yeah, that's a pretty gruesome scene. I will confess that like there were two moments, uh, I'll mention at least one of them now that genuinely startled me that I was like, oh, wow. Like, I, I've again, I've seen this film a number of times, but I still got really startled. Uh, the first and biggest one was when Dr. Gordon's daughter looks in the closet and, like, the eye is there. And uh, he, he says, I think something like, good night, little girl, or hello, little mm-hmm. girl, or something. And then when he leaps from the closet, I was like, oh! <laughs> I was like, I can't. Like, oh! <laughs> um, Can you do that so, one more time? Yes. That sounds sounds like a little fun. Well, it's funny because you didn't name what I think is probably the freakiest of that whole sort of sequence is when he's covered in the sheets, standing by her bed. Good Lord. And he he kind of wriggles a little bit. Yeah. Don't nobody want to see Michael Emerson wriggling under a sheet. Come on, man. Come on now. No wriggling. That ain't ain't a little fun. (laughs) Not at all. Oh, God. Yeah. so what else you got for scares? So Blake? so there there's no wide open spaces, so that that wasn't a problem. Um, yeah, you were <laughs> good. 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 Yeah, I was good on that. Um, really, like as far as uh like genuine scares, I, I think him wriggling under the blanket was one of the parts that actually kind of got me. Like a little bit, I was like, uh, what the heck is going on? I don't remember this. <laughs> and uh, but outside of that, I I think I just love the uh, the final scene where uh, Jigsaw closes the warehouse door. It's a nice call back to a Texas oh, yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, yes, that was just a nice ending. Like as as a horror movie fan, I was just like, yeah, that's that's a good way to end this. So, yeah, it's but, pretty great. Yeah, those th- those were the two that kind of st- stick out in my mind. Nathan, did you well, have any other scares? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I got a list. <laughs> this was not a little fun to me. Um, uh, in the mannequin factory, I mean, nothing. Come on, nothing good ever <laughs> happens in a mannequin factory. No, um, no, except maybe those late '80s movies. Those were fun. Um, yes, uh, and that was more like a shopping mall, not a mannequin factory itself. Exactly where they were created and manufactured. <laughs> um, but I jumped at the reveal of the jigsaw doll in the mannequin factory. Yes. Uh, and then the movement underneath the other sheet, I did what you did. I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yes, that's my second one where I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm like I'm just man, this is a little fun. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It progressed up. Like it started as like, a, and then like moved on into like, a <laughs> like it was, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was pretty awful. Well, I did and a it's, lot of shivering in this film and it wasn't just yeah, like, I'm like, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of gruesome. You wriggled. Did you shiver or wriggle? <laughs> <Yeah>. Wriggled. <laughs> now, I will say this. For a movie that just kind of throws all the ideas up in the air, the pig mask is pretty jacked up. I mean, like, oh what? Gosh. What are we? I mean, clearly, some future backstory develops a cult with the pig mask. I don't I'm just making this up. I don't know. I'm just freestyling oh, here man. at this point. But it's pretty out there. And it's nightmarish, man. It's gruesome. I was just, I was just waiting for Reed to be like, "Well, actually, you know what? Uh, yeah. Y'all made fun of me on the B side, so I'm gonna shut up. And y'all just give them up. Y'all just figure it out for yourself. Y'all just, y'all can watch the movie. Y'all I wasn't making fun of you. I was giving you the runway that you clearly want, and I'm kind of curious about. There ain't no making fun happen. 
You'll know. Trust me. If, if we're making you fun, and listeners will know when I'm making fun of you, Reed. Okay, this is yeah, not one it, of those moments. Come on. Come on, Reed. If we're making fun, we're just making a little fun. Yeah, just yeah, a little yeah, fun. Yeah. Just yeah. a little fun. Um, oh, gosh. Blake has murdered that joke like Jigsaw <laughs> up in here. Um, that's, my, that's my goal is to murder it so you won't ever use yeah, it again. Yeah, well, su- <laughs> success. Achievement unlocked. Nailed it. <laughs> 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 and the pig no. dude in the closet. Come on, man. That ain't oh, right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There. Oh yeah. That whole mask thing is just so. Uh, yeah. It's gruesome. no. Sincerely, I'm curious. Certainly, that comes back up, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I can't remember if there's if there's like a deliberate sort of uh, intentional reason behind it, but but that motif definitely recurs. Absolutely. But you can't recall if it's like substantiated <laughs> with some sort of like thing that feels like a big deal. No, but what I mean is, like, I can't remember if if it's more like part than of a j- cult. No, 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 you, no. It's definitely not part of like a cult because Jigsaw's thing, like Jigsaw, is he's a solo guy. Well, and he is the root of the cult. Like, like Jigsaw is the one that, like, there are there are characters who later sort of take up the mantle, and uh, you know, this, naturally, this might edge into theme, but just like the the idea of a mission of like. You know, making people appreciate their lives by putting them into life or death situations. Um, characters take up that mantle, moving on. But uh, the specific pig mask motif, I I cannot recall if it is ever brought beyond just the role of this is intimidating, and so uh, you know we use it because it's intimidating. I don't think there's ever like I had a pet pig when I was a kid, and uh, you know Dr. Gordon bought it for me, and blah, blah. like it's not that kind of thing, and it doesn't prop up a cult or anything i think it's just uh, an intimidation factor that uh, i find remarkably effective for sure yeah um yeah that's about all i got is that, is that all you got um well we've reached the point now uh in the episode time wise and uh structure wise where we're going to dive into some some deeper things I'm gonna yield to I love the I love the like clear pivot that you just made. Like even in my own oh, countenance, yeah. I was like, it's time to put on my serious hat. And I'm yes, not making like, fun. This everybody. actually is not me making fun. I'm, I'm no, like, I know, I know. Okay. It's like okay. Look at the no. serious notes and no. set aside the frivolity. Okay. Now we're gonna now we're just gonna move on. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so uh I'm gonna defer to Blake as our um in house guest at the moment and uh and ask if you've got any sort of specific thematic notions that jumped out to you. You mentioned earlier that the film, particularly this first installment, has, uh, by your recollection, had a pretty strong moral center, but um, some of that was muddled. Do you want to talk through a little bit of that and see if that pivots us into uh, some more substantive ideas? Yeah, I, so so as, as we've been talking, like even about the frivolous stuff, like my mind has been kind of working around it, and I think I've actually come back around on some of that, uh, there's mm. been a the, something you said, Reed, kind of put it and put the piece together for me. And so, ah, nice. Uh, so, so I think I think at, when I was watching last night, I just in my head, I think I had a different morality that was playing at the center of it than what mm. it actually has. And and in my head, I I, I think there's a there's a almost a temptor uh, element in the space of these people that that saw gets to kind of you know, do his bidding as you yeah, might right. put it. Uh, he's basically tempting them. He, he's saying basically, here's, here's your, here's your release. Like mm. if, if you don't want to be honest with others or yourself or, or go about this in a, a normal, like redemptive way, 
then right. here's here's your opportunity to to clear yourself and and that means harming someone else um mm, and mm. and so part of me as you was and i i don't remember exactly what it was you said reed but something you said switch that for me and i think there was an element of jigsaw that i was trying in my head from memory of the movie i was trying to put him in a more positive light um mm, and mm. i think and i think just whatever you said in that moment was like oh no 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 like i was looking at it wrong like that's nothing he's doing is positive as as is clear from the movie uh, but right kind of that switch was flipped and i was like oh no he's he's kind of the tempter uh, in in the space and he's basically giving people what they want without uh redemption so, so was it was it the observation that and i don't know i'm just kind of spitballing but yeah. was it the observation that he um th- that like what arises out of his sort of mission is he is under the delusion that he is giving people a, a, a new and profound appreciation of life yes. by putting them into a life or death situation um and and that in his twisted sense of things which by i mean which by the way and i I stumbled upon this in a bit of my uh research for the film that he um so he they make a comment in the film where it says well he never actually murders anybody um but he would be like if captured he would absolutely be he would do prison time because there is there is a um a degree of homicide that you can be charged with where you basically put someone in a position like he puts them in where they're going to kill themselves. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and so that, that is a degree, I forget which one. Um, and, and it's, it's classified as something like a, like a depraved view of human life, uh, it was yeah. the, is like part of the legal definition of it. And so it is, it is genuinely quite interesting to me. Um, so if I had a thematic notion to kind of unpack, it's, this is, I mean, on steroids and exploded out exponentially is like the righteous scare tactics that some people will employ almost pervasively trying to basically like set someone up to suffer to quote unquote teach them a lesson mm-hmm. or to posit suffering, extreme suffering as like this this lesson teaching thing or as this uh you know uh this sort of path back to redemption but again using a scare tactic using uh yeah it's a it's, this, a, it's coercion of some sort coercion yeah, that's yeah. the word i keep that's the yeah. word i keep trying to scramble for um yeah that this like coercing someone into righteousness instead yeah. of guiding and leading them into righteousness which i do find fascinating uh just as a concept because frighteningly enough while so few people in the world, if any, um, build elaborate jigsaw-like traps um, to put people in, but I think an alarming number of people on uh, small and large levels employ fear as a kind of uh, righteous mission, uh, which is something that I find equally abhorrent, uh, in, in whether in ideological conversation or in fantastical explosions like the saw franchise um, yeah but uh, nathan what what are, what are your thoughts uh... <laughs> <laughs> so um i i'm very interested in that concept reading i think residually it may feed into this and i'll throw this in the pile and we can sort of 
see what we find here. Um, something that really sung out to me was, and and not knowing or not being familiar at least with the rest of the franchise, and so I'm not I'm not viewing this first film as part of a whole and more just for what it is uh, by itself. And so uh, something that really just jumped out at me was the notion of life as a zero sum game. Mm, um mm. and this word uh of meritocracy you know this idea that um in order for me to succeed or achieve that others by default must lose yeah. um mm. and mm. in the spirit of the moment and my own feelings put more to the point is that in order for an economy to operate that old people need to be considered as lost causes mm. um that mm. this is the system that we have built and this is the system or the game that we have bought into, even Christians, for whom the guiding principle should be, and the the foundational edict is that no slave, nor free, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, there is all and only one, and yet the talons are sunk very deep into our psyche and cultural conditioning to see that, to, or rather pro- provoking the inability to see meritocracy or zero-sum social operation as at odds fully with the spirit of Christ. Um, right, right. And I, I, it's so fascinating watching a film like this, and I think maybe what helped me overcome my discomfort uh, at, at sort of the, the pressing on the bruise, it was just from a tone and content standpoint, was this notion of like, we do this. We, we operate fully. Uh, not necessarily explicitly to the death of others, mm. though, sure, yeah, uh, definitely to the oppression of, definitely to the subjugation of, and more and more, it seems like, uh, to the potential death of. Um, but we participate. We participate in this, in this. And it's so fascinating as I sometimes ponder these things in my hopeful maturing and, and, and hopeful developing wisdom as I observe culture as a person very much seeking to embody the Christ around me of like, we don't have to play this game. And, and more mm. than that, mm. we are called to be the ones instead of saying, uh, not me, but you saying not you, but me. Right. Mm. Like yeah. this movie, right. the whole right. idea of this is, it's not going to be me. It's going to be you. It's not going to be me. I'm going to do everything, even if, uh, even though, yes, this person is playing on our attachments, right? Like Tobin Bell sets up Michael Emerson to play on Dr. Lawrence's attachments, his family. Right, right. right. Like someone is playing on your attachments to manipulate you, to coerce you, as that word has come up, towards a certain end. And, and you know, like this is the nature of the call, Right which is to consider mm. all of these things as lost for the propping up, for the esteeming, for the uh, enrichment of someone else. Like, I don't want to lose my attachments. I don't want to have my attachments threatened. But that's part of the g- deal. Like, yeah, it's, not a, it's right. not a game. And, and it's so fascinating, you know, what horror can do well. And... I do think this movie does this well, even if it is a little bit accidental in how it finds it, is helping us recognize the metaphor represented here, which is we all do this. Mm -hmm. Like every 
uh, I, I really, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get quite so hot and bothered here, but like, no, no. you know, every sort of engagement is some negotiation with transactional sort of tit for tat, right? Like, right, right. I'm going to do this thing because however subconscious it might be, I'm cognizant that it will gain me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not even when it's things as simple as the clothes you buy and who made them. Yeah. The food, the food you eat and the processes by which they came to you. This yeah. is that. This is participation in that game. Now, is everything meant to be scrutinized to this level? Yes. Is that humanly possible? Not really. Mm. You know, that's yeah, where right. that's where the communion or I'm sorry, the community and the spirit and tradition and experience inform how we step forward. But I do think the impossible is what is called for by us. Uh, which is to utterly call out and banish as best we can our, you know, th there's, there's so little way in which practically speaking, we're going to completely be able to unplug from this game as I'm calling it, but right, at right, minimum, right. at minimum to be able to recognize your, your role and participation in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Sorry, didn't mean to quite, get carried away there oh no that's good no 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 uh and 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 i can see the like i feel like we are so tied into that system mm. that the reason it's humanly impossible is i mean we, we're in the woods already like we're born in the woods on it so it surrounds us we're brought up into it the amount of effort just to gain clarity on it is so substantive, let alone to navigate your way out of it. I mean, the 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 amount of work it takes, and and I don't know if either of you caught up with the show The Good Place. Did you? Did either of you watch no. that to, through no. to its fruition? Um, no spoilers about the ending, the very ending of the uh, of the show, but. I will say that an element that, so this is uh, not a plot spoiler, but it is a thematic spoiler for The Good Place. Um, an element that arises, I believe, around season three is it becomes apparent to some of our characters that the reason it is so difficult to get into The Good Place is because of how complex human relationships have become and that even an act of generosity, like giving someone a bag of groceries also demerits them because of, to your point, Nathan, where those groceries came from and the, yeah, the yeah, systems yeah. that caused them. So, so the generosity of an individual saying, I'm going to give a hundred, a hungry person, a bag of groceries also propagates this system that, mm -hmm. uh, people, uh, suffered from to produce those groceries that you have in that bag that you're giving to someone who's impoverished. And so not you know, spending any more time on the good place, that concept of, you know, w it is humanly impossible. Should, should we be cognizant of that? Yes. Um, and, and, and I love what you, how you unpacked that there, that I think it is important for us to simply register that we must do the best we can with what we have been given. And I feel like there's something to be said for, um, there are some people who live in woeful ignorance, and I think there are some people who live in willful ignorance. 
Yeah. And I think each and every one of us Whoa. are in <laughs> Whoa. Um I think each and every one of us are in some degree of the woeful ignorance. I am woefully sure, ignorant sure. of going to the grocery store, filling my cart, paying money for it that and, and and then taking it home and eating it and enjoying it. And I am woefully ignorant of the places that that was produced and and what that brought me to here. But I think that's a very different thing than once I know, well, now I know. And now right. that I know, sure. I sure. have a responsibility with that knowledge. And mm-hmm. it is, it, there is a concept in theology, uh, the, the idea of transgression versus iniquity, the, the actions that you do willfully and the actions that you did that were also wrong, but you had no idea what you were doing. You had sure. no idea yeah. Yeah. what you were contributing to. And I do feel like once you know, there is a responsibility that comes with that, and yeah. that once you're aware, you a gauntlet has been thrown that basically is like, well, well, now you you are obligated to a degree to do something with that. And I'll even go one step further than that and say, does it rest upon the shoulders of we three who are doing a podcast here and and going to go out? Does it does it rest on our shoulders to save the world? No, that's that's an impossible burden to carry, but to then pivot back and say, well, I can't solve the world, so I'm just going to keep propping up the system. I'm going to do nothing. Right, right. Because I can't fix it, I'm just going to do nothing. That is also the wrong way to approach the problem. We must be mindful of our own restraints and limitations, mindful of the uh, limits of our power and influence, and do what we can with what we have to produce good in the world around us. Um, and and as we become aware of the meritocracy that is at play around us, like we're, we're kind of talking a bit around it, but but let's let's for a moment just uh, tap dance, you know, with with what little time we have left here, let's tap dance a bit in this moment that we're in, where you have um, a pervasive and uh, highly communicable disease that, for good or ill, is transmitted by a lot of people before they are symptomatic. So somebody's not sick, and so then they can go out and they're like, "I'm not sick. I'm not. I'm not worried." But then they are spreading the disease to a large number of people as that information comes out, and as self quarantines become in place uh, at, at the state level, there are still, in my uh, admittedly small circle of people, still uh, an alarming number of people who are like, "This is. It's not a big deal. Like this yeah. is. This is just not a thing." Um, I, I'm not worried about it. Uh, I'm not sick. I feel fine. I'm, 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 and just and just not taking some basic steps that people are urging us to take. And what that strikes me as is that is dangerously close to edging into willful ignorance rather than woeful. And that I think yeah. does carry ethical and spiritual ramifications to your well-being and to the well-being of your neighbors to continue to proceed once you know. If you don't know, we can lift a cry to the heavens to say, Jesus, save us. But once you know, now you have a responsibility to do something with that. And that's that's just something that uh, is echoing in my mind from what you're laying out here, Nathan, about the the, the meritocracy nature of us uh, just basically saying like, well, I'm going to concern myself with what's affecting me and what is an inconvenience to my life and my well-being and my future. And that is, um, is really all that matters in the moment. Um, 
Well, and I'm putting the, it in the. I'm sorry, putting it in the context of even the film. Like, just the film such, does such a good job of distilling this concept down to a very rudimentary elements, right? Two persons, one location, uh, though with some nuance here. One scenario, in other words, mm-hmm. being right, played, being right. played against each other um, to the point of possible, you know, murder of the other, and you know as you sort of watch films like this and, and dial into that higher level reflective zone, it's like, it is the moment late in the film. Once the threat is comprehended and the manipulation is clear where we, as people of faith, I think call the bluff. And let me, let me rephrase that. There's a decent chance it might not be a bluff, but you still call it right, and you right. say, yes, I, yes. I refuse to participate. And, yeah. and, and I think that's a very challenging position to take sometimes. And, and I love read your dichotomy there of the woeful versus the willful. And mm-hmm. because, because I absolutely feel we have to in the same, by the same token of self chastisement if you will like i will no longer choose as best i can to participate in this we do have to exercise some grace towards those who still are in that woeful state right uh, of i mean we yes for better or worse we exercise grace towards the woeful and the willful it's just harder with the willful yeah. um right i think yeah. a, i think a lot about uh and blake i know you've uh by interest and even by geography have done a lot of uh, the, the reason you're our head of the department of restorative justice is just some of the personal study you've done of race (laughs) relations in the country. Mm -hmm. And I, I think so often about the sort of transformative experience I had at, uh, the, you know, peace and justice museum in Montgomery with EJI and how like you, it is that zero sum meritocracy type of thing coming into full stark view. It is, or, and, or even better, using your language, read of the woeful and the willful, it is, oh my God, I have been so woefully unaware mm, of mm-hmm. not just the plight, but even ways I participate in and, and accelerate and prop up that plight. Um, and, you know, th- that's not a me patting me on the back scenario by any means. It's simply identifying a place where you know, it took 38 years to, to sort of come to some new found, I would say sort of supernatural revelation of that willful ignorance, you know? Yeah. Um, Right. And, and, and again, that's a very direct correlation, but I think that even applies as we're talking about these, of these systems, these, these, these things that are not, especially, when you start talking about economics, these things that are, are not echoes of the spirit of Christ that we still consider sacred cows. And that's a really dangerous, yeah, yeah, dangerous right. place. No, absolutely. I want to, uh, Blake, I feel bad that, uh, that we've not like specifically pivoted over to you. I will in just a moment. I, um, I have Blake one more thing to jump in. Not yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, a seasoned. I've got, I've got something here in a little bit. So okay, all right. Finish, I'll be good. You're you're a seasoned fogger. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw <laughs> one more. 
<laughs> I'm going to throw uh, one more uh, sort of uh, coal, uh, coal briquette on the fire and then uh, pivot over to you, Blake. Um, okay. Another thing that, that I think is important to recognize in this conversation about like when we observe the woeful and the willful, and Nathan, this came to me while you were saying what you were just saying, um, about in terms of like our reaction and showing grace towards both the woeful and the willful, I think it, and this is text of the film, what Jigsaw's mission is, is he is sick and tired because of the cancer in his body. He is sick and tired of seeing people wander through their life without appreciation for it. Like his response to it is, I'm sick of these people who don't appreciate what they have and don't know what's at play. So I am going to kidnap them and position them in an elaborate torture game to teach them, you know, because that's what it is. As the series progresses, a thematic notion that comes up is Jigsaw, the individual's purpose was always to teach a lesson. Some of the people who adopt his persona and his mission pivot that to purely to punish. They stop, they remove the lesson portion of it and instead uh, begin to exact traps that are, that are not escapable, that are purely designed to punish the person for what they've done. And that becomes a thematic tension point in the, in the film that you have like these two versions, these two visions of, one torture. of, of to- <laughs> basically torture, yes. One torture that is instructive and meant to be uh, a perverse version of restoration and another version of it that is meant purely to uh, punish the people who have missed it in this, in this game. And I think it is important, even in our own responses, to monitor. I see, and, and here's where I'm going with this. I'll, I'll take it back to the current virus thing. I have seen... I haven't seen it be blatant yet, but I have seen it edge up to um, like when someone who has uh, committed tremendous wrongdoing uh, in their own personal lives um, and then they suddenly test positive for the virus or they come in contact with it. Um, Let me be very explicit here. That is not a matter to be rejoiced about. That is not a matter to be, uh, you know, like, oh, serves you right or karma or anything. That is soul sickening. If you begin to, in the same way that Nathan uh, brought up this whole meritocracy thing, like this is not, this struggle, this present struggle we find ourselves in or any struggle therein to come in the future is not uh, an equalizer of uh, like, it's not something that we can rightfully view as uh, like, oh, well, I'm going to rejoice when people that I don't approve of get it uh, while simultaneously praying that the people I love don't get it. Like you have to be monitoring of your own heart and spirit and reaction when um, in this mindset, lest uh, you become, like Jigsaw's followers and just seek to use what once was instructive and turn it into punitive. Um, and, uh, and even worse than that, I mean, Jigsaw himself is kind of twisted in his own, uh, mindset, but, uh, anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there before we left it completely. But, uh, Blake, uh, what, what you got for us? Well, as we in Texas say, that'll pre-treat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brother. Uh, so, <laughs> So the the only thing I was going to add is is kind of bringing it back to to more of a personal existential point on both of y'all's uh, comments is I think I think for me just looking back at my own life and, and coming across knowledge that that required of me uh, better action uh, and and more mm-hmm. moral action 
um, there's there's a, there's there's something I noticed about myself, and I assume it's it's fairly universal. It may look different for different people, but um, I would there, there's elements of my own being throughout my life where I've I would rather remain complicit or coercing the suffering of others than I would uh, face the suffering of my own right choices. Mm, sure. Um, mm. And so, wow. yeah. um, in some ways, like just on a very purely existential element is like I doing right does not feel good most of the time, especially yes. in, in, in yes. a broken world. Um, and so, and sometimes <laughs> doing right leads to nothing. Um, unfortunately, mm. um, foolishness doing, doing right in this world is foolishness. Um, and yeah. so yeah. I just like, like I, I completely agree with what both of y'all are saying as far as your like kind of Nathan's taking it more broadly and kind of meritocracy and, and you're woefully and woefully, which is brilliant. Um, thank you. But just kind of bring it personally is like, why, why do we not recognize that game that we're in mm. and, and mm. why, why do we not? It's because we're afraid. We're, we're afraid that it's going to hurt and it will hurt if we do yeah. if we choose yeah. the right path and 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 that's something that only the spirit can provide is is the courage to to choose right um and mm-hmm. i I've, yeah, I've seen it in my own life when um i got to precipices where i just literally could not make that transgression anymore um yeah yeah and so yeah i just wanted to put that out there as a as a more personal kind of uh visceral you know existence part of it so Sure, sure. Um, well, I, we have gone to a a wealth of places. Um, I feel uh, the impulse at this moment to kind of to kind of leave it there. Um, I I don't want if somebody's got something burning they want to say, then uh, I would invite you. Otherwise, y'all ready to go to the to the fog meter? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So the fog meter, as you know by now, listeners, is our very specific metric of fear and God, where we rate the films on their scares and their substance. Um, I'll lead the charge on the fear metric with this. Um, I feel like this is a film that reputationally is scarier than it is uh, by experience. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, naturally, like what the film is playing with in in its runtime is a bit more gruesome than what it actually shows you. So that's going to land me at a six for the fear measurement. Um, what you got, Blake? Uh, so I, I definitely agree. I think uh, even in my head before I watched it this time, it was a lot more jarring uh, than what it ended up being on this yeah. viewing. And so, um, I think for me, I. I'm gonna stick with a five. Uh, I think there's there's little moments that that really uh, are effective as far as kind of jump scares or just kind of disturbing elements uh, that work for me. Uh, but on the whole, I I think it it to its credit, I think it actually is restrained enough to tell the story instead of just uh, bathe in the violence. So yeah, yeah, I like that. Nathan, how about for you? I mean, I think the strength of its, or or rather the the force of its tone, and even if restrained on screen, the 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 you know just kind of viscera inherent to its concept, you know pushes it earns it a lot of points on this scale. But I I would agree there there actually isn't a ton of jump scares, and even some of the 
dated production quality dulls a little bit of what might be there otherwise um so uh a six feels fair um that 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 does not feel like an unfair ranking so i'm gonna i'm gonna go with a six awesome uh and what would you say nathan for the god measure um i don't i didn't do quite enough reading to know how if at all intentional this was to it uh or if they just kind of again uh, desperation breeds innovation here but i do think it's it's moralistic axis earns it a good bit of kind of goodwill here. Um, even if ultimately this particular film doesn't do a ton with that, except just kind of pose the general question. So, um, uh, I think, uh, by the same token, a six feels kind of fair in that regard. Awesome. Blake, what about for you? Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little bit higher than Nathan. I'm going to go with a seven, uh, just because I think by its very nature, those questions, if you're one who is willing to engage them, will automatically bring you into some deep waters if you're willing to go there, um, which I don't know, like this could be me generalizing, but in my head, the people who go see these kind of movies are not the type to really dive into deep, deep waters. <laughs> and so, <laughs> right, um, right. so part of me wonders if that's if a lot of that is lost on most of the audience, but uh, I'm going to hold out hope that it, that it's not lost. And so I'm going to go with a seven. Awesome. Uh, I'm actually going to join you uh, for myself with this. I feel like it edges up to some interesting ideas that it does not uh, really choose to explore in in greater depth, um, at least in this initial installment. Uh, I do feel like the friend, again, I've said it multiple times in this uh, conversation that oddly enough, the franchise as a whole is very interesting in some of the places it goes with some of its core thematic concepts um, to a degree that uh, that still impresses me. Uh, so I'm going to give it a seven as well for the God meter. That means that we give Saw, directed by James Wan, written by and starring Lee Wanell, a six out of ten on the Fog meter, which uh, feels... Yeah, that feels right. That feels good. Um, But the uh, more prevalent question at the moment, and perhaps a little difficult to answer, uh, Nathan, I'm going to start with you. Would you recommend Saw? I think so. Um, I think uh, knowing how I'd propped it up in my head as just sort of extreme viscera and gore, uh, it does pull some of that back in a way that I was pleasantly surprised by, even though, again, receive that as someone who's been waiting in these waters for three years straight. So it may be Mm -hmm. over the top for some folks, but uh, I do think just conceptually uh, and especially even though we've already spoiled it, if you haven't seen it, that final beat does provide enough of a push to say, yeah, this is definitely worth checking out. Blake, how about for you? Uh, So if you'd asked me when I first saw this back in the day, uh, I think I would have given an overwhelming recommend. and, And I think I would still give it, I still recommend it uh, today. Uh, I would just kind of knock it down to just a little fun. <laughs> Very <is>. appropriate. Very <laughs> appropriate. Um, and I, uh, it's like jigsaw. Would... You worked real hard to pull that one off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm going to give this a cautious recommendation. Um, I will, I will, uh, 
bluntly say, as we all have, um, if you are worried about sort of the extremity of violence, that this first installment is much more restrained, uh, perhaps much more uh, accessible, um, although it, it is gruesome in its concepts uh, in a way that might you might feel a little squeamish about, but is definitely not exploitative in its violence. So I'll give it a cautious recommendation. Um, I definitely think horror fans, particularly those who are not uh, squeamish around violence, should definitely check it out because it's uh, a benchmark in the horror community and uh, and worth seeing, I think. Um, so yeah, that, that wraps this uh, episode up of 2020, 2020. Yeah, it was a little fun. It was a little fun. I liked it. I liked <laughs> oh, God. it. <laughs> oh, no, guys. No, guys. This was a lot of fun. Okay. There you go. I agree. There you go. Way to redeem the joke, Blake. (laughs) So, um, so Blake, uh, as always, it is a privilege to have you back. Uh, Best of luck with the Eighty Eight Names podcast. Uh, Listeners, go check that out to hear Blake and author Matt Ruff talk about the virtual reality world that is now upon us. Um, Nathan, as always, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Listeners, next week um, we are going to two thousand five. And we are wow. going to be watching a film that is uh, very challenging in its subject matter. So again, as we've said a couple of times, use some discernment, do a little bit of research. But it is a film called Hard Candy. Um, so uh, if you so desire, you can check that film out. Either way, join us next week to hear your top 10 favorite horror films of 2005 and a full discussion on the film Hard Candy. Um, thank you both, gentlemen, for joining me uh, in this particular journey. Uh, thank you very, very much. And listeners, as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. So, um, thank, you guys. thank you. We'll see you next week. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.